Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, I appreciate you being here today for our uh, student forum or our presence forum or whatever we call it. And uh, you all have submitted a uh, large number of questions, although, again, if there's something you want to ask today, there's a mic here and a mic there in the middle. And I'm happy to receive. Uh, you just need to walk up. I'll get you. Uh, uh, I'll see you. And I'll be glad to let you ask a question from the floor if you uh, did not send one in. Uh, but there's something that you would like to ask. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for life itself. It is a gift that we receive every single day and one that we should not take for granted. Thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, and for the encouragement and blessing they are to me. Pray that you'd bless this time today all for your glory and the building up of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of questions, not surprisingly, were related to the uh, Great Commission Resurgence Task Force and the movement. And so I'm going to try to hit those first. And uh, since there will be some overlapping, I, I think I can move through them uh, fairly quickly. Uh, how do you feel the retirements of Drs. Hammond, Rankin, and Chapman will affect the GCR? Well, Dr. Hammond, of course, resigned. Uh, he did not retire. Dr. Rankin will retire at the end of June. Dr. Chapman will retire at the end of September. I think it's massive. I think that the GCR task force can bring forward, uh, theoretically, the, the greatest report in the history of Christendom. And if the right people are not in place to implement it, it, uh, it will not succeed. It, it will not go forward. So I am praying regularly for each of those uh, three positions and I'm asking uh, the Lord to place the right people there. It would make a huge, huge uh, difference to get people in those positions who are supportive of the GCR, who do believe that there needs to be some significant changes in the SBC for us to move ahead uh, in the days before us. So I think it's very, very, very crucial. Do you believe the GCR is the tool that we are to use that can bring the SBC together? Or is it a device that is being used to segregate the denomination and Baptists in general further? Well, the answer to that is uh, it could be either. Depends how uh, we respond to it. It is, of course, my prayer that the uh, resurgence will bring us together, uh, uniting us around a passion for the Great Commission, a passion for the nations, a passion for our nation, uh, all of that grounded in strong, uh, firm theological conviction that is not up for debate, not negotiable uh, on those things that are essential. Again, um, we don't have to be uh, lockstep in every area of theology. Uh, I think the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 does provide a good umbrella under which we can operate. And so um, I think so because it is clear on the non-negotiables of what it means to be an orthodox, evangelical, Bible-believing Christian. It also gives leeway in a number of areas where we can respectfully disagree and still work together. Uh, at this point in time, um, I think there is significant enthusiasm for the Great Commission uh, Resurgence Task Force report, especially from folks your age uh, and folks that are in the churches. Uh, we are 
not surprisingly, getting some pushback from some of our denominational leaders, both on the national level and uh, on the state level. Uh, We're doing our best to listen. We're doing our best to engage in dialogue. But uh, I don't think that you'll find us backing up or backing off what we have initially set forth. And um, because I think what we have tried to put forward as a vision for the future, uh, if adopted, could uh, take us forward in a healthy way. Basically, we're saying that our denomination has to change the way it does business. We've got to get more personnel and more resources among the unreached peoples of the world and the underserved and unreached people of uh, North America. Again, it's, it's um, mind-boggling that we spend two-thirds of our cooperative program dollars in the south and one-third in the north, uh, the west coast, where you've got these massive uh, unreached areas, massive lostness there. And uh, that just needs to change. But understand that change is always painful and uh, it's always difficult. Uh, people don't just naturally say, hey, great idea, cut my budget, re-establish where my resources are going to go, cut my staff. Boy, where have you been all my life? Thank you for coming to do this. That is not usually well received by anybody. And so I want to be fair to those that are looking at what might happen if the uh, report is adopted and then implemented. And uh, yet there are a number of them who are saying, you know, it will be painful, it will be difficult, uh, but it's the right thing to do. And so uh, my prayer is that come Orlando, one, uh, there will be a massive turnout. One of our, I'm praying it will be one of our largest conventions in a long time. Secondly, that there will be an overwhelming support of the task force report, which then will hopefully, by the sheer momentum of it, draw us together, bring us together to move forward uh, in the days ahead. Which then means this for, for all of you. Uh, if you can go to Orlando as a messenger, you need to. Even if you say, well, I, I don't like the report. Well, you still should go and, and uh, voice your convictions. Uh, but I think you need to go. You need to encourage the, your home churches to send a full contingent of messengers. Uh, the more people that are there, the better. Because that means there's a wider base of representation. And if Southern Baptists don't want to go in this direction, then they need to step up and, and speak their mind. And then we respond accordingly. But if we do want to move in this direction, then that also needs to be voiced, and that will only happen uh, if folks uh, are there to vote. The GCR Task Force Progress Report recommended to entrust the IMB with the ministry to reach the unreached and underserved people groups without regard to any geographic limitations. Would this include appointing IMB personnel to areas such as Dearborn, uh, Michigan, where you have a massive Muslim population in the U.S., New York City. Uh, if so, where is the line to be drawn between the IMB and the North American Mission Board work? Practically, what would these two organizations working together in North America look like? That is a really, really uh, good question. Uh, as far as missionaries being appointed uh, in America by the IMB, that will be determined by the new president. Dr. Rankin has said initially that that would not be what he would want to do. Uh, because he has such a passion for the unreached people groups, of which there's still more than 6,500 in the world. So his vision, I think, would be folks that are here on stateside assignment during that stateside period are those who come back uh, having retired or having fulfilled a term but still have a passion for a particular people group that they have engaged uh, might locate themselves and work in partnership uh, with the IMB in that kind of a way. Um, 
I will admit to hear some frustration because I hear people uh, again and again and again and again saying, well, you're going to have people overlapping. You're going to have a duplication of work. You're going to have uh, people, uh, multiple people, maybe uh, associations, uh, state conventions, NAM, IMB, all working in the same area. Okay. Is, is there like a problem? I mean, is there like uh, too few lost people in these places for us to have all of that going on? Now, again, granted. Common sense says that we will communicate and, and cooperate with each other. And again, just to be honest, we're all big people, and I tend to just kind of speak to people like they're big people. The IMB and NAM has not worked well together in the past. Uh, I hope that that will change. And again, what will be the key? A president at the IMB and a president at NAM that both say, uh, let's get together regularly, talk, communicate, and work together so that we do strategize well for the reaching of uh, North America uh, with the gospel and where we strategize well to seek and reach these underserved and uh, unreached people groups in North America. I mean, why that would not happen, I do not know. Basically, the only reason it would not happen is because we're sinful and we refuse to cooperate and work well with each other and that that would happen within the body of Christ is shameful. And so it is my prayer that uh, both search committees will make it crystal clear to whoever's going to be the next president that this is not an option. This is an expectation. But at the same time, again, I just don't understand why sometimes we become so territorial and why we're so concerned about guarding our turf. Uh, that to me is is disappointing. And I could scarcely imagine Paul fussing at one of the other church planters in the first century, for you don't have a right to go into the Corinth belongs to me. Nobody else can go into Corinth but me. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, can you even imagine Paul thinking in those categories, or for that matter, Barnabas or John Mark or Luke or Peter? No, no. There, there's so much massive lostness. Uh, I'm happy for our folks to go anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, we should try to communicate and coordinate as best we can. But again, uh, there's some people that are just so territorial and uh, so uh, committed to guarding their turf. I'm sorry, but we just have to simply say, God bless everything you do for Jesus. But I'm going on anyway because I don't have to have your permission. I just really need to have the, uh, a word from the Lord that this is where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, if you want to come alongside of me and encourage me in it, praise God. If you don't. I again pray God blesses every good thing you do for Jesus. I hope you'll pray the same thing for me. But I'm going. And I don't need your permission. I mean, that's connectionalism. Uh, that is a hierarchical uh, form of church government. And one of the reasons that we are Baptists, and I think rightly so, is because of the uh, autonomy of the local church and the ability for believers to rightly discern God's will and then respond accordingly and, and in obedience. So those are my thoughts there. Um, a friend told me that you said if Southeastern, in light of the Great Commission resurgence, were to uh, keep students from fulfilling the Great Commission some way or another, you would shut it down. Now, that's a strong statement. Uh, is that true? Well, I don't know I said it exactly that way because, first of all, I couldn't shut it down. That would be the responsibility of trustees. But I can, uh, I do think I probably said something like this. If Southeastern Seminary is not uh, being used by God to fulfill the Great Commission, then we can burn it to the ground and that'll be fine with me. Is that strong enough?
Because if we're not being involved in what God has called us to do, then we don't have any reason to exist. In fact, I say all the time, Southeastern Seminary exists to serve the churches and to fulfill the Great Commission. And if we're not doing that, then we have forfeited our right to exist. And either one, we need to change the way we do business, or we need to go out of business, sell the assets, give them to somebody else who is doing a good job of fulfilling the Great Commission. And I think that's not only true of Southeastern, I think that should be true of all of our entities as well. Um, is the GCR reimagining Baptist polity? Um, because report appears to focus on a nationalization and centralization of what it means to be a Southern Baptist. Well, I would have to say, I think you're misreading this question, misreads the report. Uh, because if anything, I think the report's intent is to get uh, the local church back at the center of what it means to be uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and that it needs to be ground zero for all that we do. Furthermore, this whole process has uh, amazingly to me revealed just how ignorant our people are about our polity and amazingly even some that went to seminary. Now, it's all right, you know, for like my mom and dad who are now with the Lord not to understand SBC polity because they didn't care about it. They weren't involved in it. That wasn't their concern. But for you not to realize, and I'll work backwards, that our task force cannot tell any state convention what to do. We cannot tell any association what to do. We cannot tell any Baptist church what to do. And we can't tell any of you what to do. Now, we can make suggestions about what we would see as helpful to the Great Commission on the state convention, association, local church, and individual Christian level. And our final report will have all of that in there. But when we gave our income report uh, in Nashville just a couple of weeks ago, the primary purpose was to speak to those specific issues that could be acted on on the national level. So what did we do? We talked about releasing the IMB to do evangelism among unreached people groups in North America. We talked about re-imagining um, and revisioning the North American Mission Board, which by their own testimony is broke and needs to be revisioned and reimagined. And then we also spoke to the executive committee uh, about uh, where stewardship and cooperative program promotion would go, as well as making a recommendation to take a percentage of their budget, give it to the IMB. Basically, it's symbolic because it only accounts for two or three million dollars, although two or three million dollars is still two or three million dollars. That would be almost half of the allocation that Southeastern Seminary gets from the cooperative program uh, every year. But uh, those are the only things we can speak to in terms of asking the convention to direct those agencies to act. And so uh, in terms of polity, this particular question raises an issue that's really not possible. And again, I'm hearing some folks say, and maybe this is a reflection of this, that what the GCR task force report seems to do is strengthen a top-down approach. Now, I would strongly disagree with that. I think that's a misreading of the report. And I don't think it is uh, suggesting that at all. In fact, if anything, I think what it's trying to do is uh, liberate the North American Mission Board to work more directly and intentionally with local churches scattered around North America for aggressive church planting, which will have to be done, by the way, by other local churches. That's where we're going with this. Uh, we don't see NAM uh, planting churches. We see churches planting churches. 
And we see the North American Mission Board as coming alongside of them and assisting them in planting churches. But that then comes back to something we can only encourage, and that is this. And so, since we're here, it is my prayer that every one of you, as an individual believer, would have in your person the DNA of church planting. And wherever you go and whatever you do in terms of service to the Lord Jesus, you would be a part of a church that sees as its calling to be a church planting church. My prayer is by the time uh, I leave this world 20, 25 years from now, if God's gracious, probably more like 20, um, because Aikens don't live very long past 70, uh, that we won't have 45,000 churches, that we would have 75,000 churches. Now, that would bring revival among Southern Baptists, and that would make a tremendous impact in North America. Again, they have to be church planting churches, though. That means they have to be churches that have also in their DNA missions and evangelism. Again, if you've read the report that Dr. Ronnie Floyd gave, the thing that stuck out for me that was just so humbling and so embarrassing is that uh, 50 years ago, with half the number of churches... And half the number of Southern Baptists, we baptized 32,000 more people then than we did last year. Now, it ought to get quiet. And every one of us ought to be asking the question, why? Why is that true? What is it that I'm not doing that that is the reality? What is it that my church is not doing? My association is not doing? My state convention is not doing? What is it that the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches is not doing that with half the number of churches and believers, they did a better job of evangelizing than we do? And I hear all these silly answers like, well, you know, back then uh, folks were having a lot more kids. Folks, ask Alvin Reed, there are more teenagers in America today than any other time in the history of our nation And we were baptizing half the number of teenagers we baptized 50 years ago. So what are your churches and what are you not doing to reach teenagers with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, those are hard questions that we can throw out there. But then each church and each individual believer will have to decide, all right, in light of the irrefutable documented evidence, what will we do to make things different and to change the status quo. So I don't see this as in any way reimagining or adjusting our our policy. All right. Um, I'm going to throw this one back to my missions guys and because it's kind of a a, a specific missions question. Uh, The Great Commission Resurgence has become a byword with Southeastern Seminary. You know, byword's not usually a positive thing, so Maybe you meant like a good word, but maybe you meant a byword. All right, we'll see. My question is, with the focus upon fulfilling the Great Commission to all the nations and the conviction the seminary adheres to concerning the role of women in preaching, teaching to mixed audiences. Actually, let me jump ahead. Seminary didn't have a policy on that, but that's okay. Does this mean that the woman, that women, can only disciple the women, children of the nations rather than the Pantai ethne, all the nations, and in effect, not be able to fulfill the Great Commission at face value? I know this might sound like a pointed and or smart question. I think you probably meant smart aleck question. I don't take it that way at all. It is genuinely serious and something I've thought about since coming to seminary from a non-Baptist perspective viewpoint concerning men and women in ministry. Thank you for your consideration of the question. Well, here's the bottom line, guys. What, what does the Bible teach? Bible's clear. And you can reject it if you want to, but the Bible's clear. God calls men to a leadership assignment in the home and in the church. 
Therefore, only a man is to lead his home, and only men are to occupy the office of the elder in the local church. Now, beyond that, those of us who believe the Bible fall in different areas uh, and, and, and occupy different categories of how you then move beyond that question. Well, let's, let's put it out on the mission field. And I, I actually dealt with this. Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon was a complementarian. Lottie Moon believed that only men should pastor and lead local churches. But because men like today are sorry, scum-sucking dogs who don't do what God's called them to do, and they sit around in their pajamas playing video games, uh, Lottie Moon was over there with no men. And so at first she was able to enlist a couple times some Presbyterian ministers to fill Baptist pulpits. Well, I love that. And then she'd be out on the mission field, and what would happen is the women and the children would gather, but the men would come off to the side, and they would kind of listen. So they actually put up, a, go read Five Who Changed the World, put up a partition, and she would teach the women and the children, and the men would eavesdrop. Do I think Lottie Moon was sinning? No. I do not. In fact, I can't find anywhere in the Bible that a woman cannot evangelize a man. If you can find that... After we dismiss, you come show it to me. Can she pastor a church? No. Can she be an elder in a church? No. But God calls all of us to share the gospel. God calls all of us to, if you won't, preach the gospel. God calls all of us to be evangelists for Jesus. And so if it falls into those categories, I say praise God for all the women. Go for it. But can you have, and do I think it wise, uh, to have women in leadership assignments uh, on the mission field because, well, you know, they're the only ones over there. Again, like Lottie Moon, what she would do as soon as she could raise up a man uh, who was sufficiently mature in the faith to uh, lead a church, she turned everything on to him and she moved on. Uh, I don't think that's ideal, but I can live with it. And so, you know, again, I understand uh, with our uh, theological convictions how sometimes uh, ladies can feel like they are kicked to the curb and treated as second-class citizens. I don't really understand that. Uh, I still think the best model for doing church life is Titus 2, where you've got older godly men discipling younger men so that they might become older godly men. And I think the best person to disciple a man is a man. And I think that you have that great model of older godly women discipling younger women so they will become older godly women. And so who's the best person to disciple a woman? A woman. And by the way, ladies, there are like lots of women out there that need to be saved and need to have the gospel shared with them. And so don't you won't get a sympathetic uh, ear from me if you come whining saying, well, you know, I'm limited to. who? No, no, you're not. 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 Furthermore. Children, they are not strictly the preview of women, boys. We need men to step up to the plate, pour their lives into boys who then hopefully will grow up to be men and hopefully men of God. And why we sometimes, again, advocate our responsibility and give back. Well, children are best taught by women. Where do you? Come on. Deuteronomy 6 says what? The fathers and the grandfathers are to train the children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all of their mind. So don't know. That, that is so wrong in its thinking from the get-go. And so for me, this is really a, kind of a non-issue. Now, I know it's 
got certain contexts on the mission field where things have happened that have caused this to be uh, debated and problematic. I'll be happy to engage those one-on-one. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't see this uh, movement and I don't see a biblical theology of manhood and womanhood in any way inhibiting women from fulfilling fully, completely, joyfully, and in a satisfying way what God has saved them and called them to be. All right, enough GCR. How come we sing about dancing in our worship songs but only see it in charismatic churches? Does this make us hypocrites? And if so, how can we encourage our churches to dance for Jesus? Well, let me say this. If you... uh, Don't dance for Jesus. Um, No, let me say it this way. If you do dance for Jesus, it may overcome the hypocrisy, but given the way some of you dance, it would probably be sinful. And so, um, (laughs) you know, it's the old question, can a Baptist dance? Well, some can and some can't. Uh, I happen to fall in the can't category. Uh, Bottom line in anything like this, if it comes to lifting your hands shouting amen, dancing unto the Lord, which, of course, would never be done in a sensual, provocative kind of a way. Uh, The question is, what's your motivation? What's your motivation? And as did happen in one of my churches on one occasion, I didn't have a problem, and I don't have a problem with any of this. I don't have a problem with, with you dancing to the Lord, raising your hands. I do on occasion, clapping your hands, shouting amen, praise the Lord, go get them. That's the point, whatever it is. You know, I'm, I'm happy with all of that. But we had a church that I served one time where the pastor, I was not the senior pastor, he didn't like any of that kind of stuff. He, he's pretty much a, an old school, you know, we, almost like a Baptist Presbyterian. And uh, so but we had a guy that, that liked to raise his hands and kind of sway and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I just went to him and I said, you know what? You, you make the pastor nervous. Don't bother me. You make the pastor nervous, though. So let, let me make a suggestion. Now listen to this. Instead of doing that on the front row, do it on the back row. Okay? Well, no, that wasn't okay. No, he, he needed to do it on the front row. To which I said, why? Is, is God, like, not capable of seeing the back row? Is God's eyes so dim that he cannot see the back row? And he said, well, I said, no, no, here's your deal. Here's the deal. I said, right now, you've already answered the question for me. You need to stop. Because your motivation's wrong. You're doing it for show. You're doing it to try to indict and demonstrate to your brothers and sisters you're more spiritual than they are. And the fact of the matter is, you're not. You're not. So an issue like this, again, comes down to motivation. An issue like this also comes down to your love for the local church and the love for your brothers and sisters. And again, if you knew in advance that that was going to be something that would be offensive, that would be counterproductive to the body of Christ coming together to worship the Lord, then it would be sinful. You all know that I've had, at least on this campus now, three times C.J. Mahaney, who has become a dear, dear friend to me. He is this weird animal in that he is a charismatic five-point Calvinist. And that is a weird duck, I'm telling you. But it fits C.J. So anyway, every time C.J. has been here, I think he forgot that he asked me the question the previous times, but every time we've been here, he has usually been right down here on the front row with me, or I was sitting behind him one time. And he turned around and he said to me, uh, uh, Danny, I am here to serve you. I am here as your invited guest. Now, when I worship, I kind of like to lift my hands. And my feet will get a little happy every now and then. And, and basically, if you've ever been with CJ, 
he doesn't really sing. He talks through the songs. I mean, he's up there just kind of having his own conversation with his hands up and his feet and whatever he's doing. And he said, and if that's going to be problematic, I can just put my hands in my pocket and I can lock my feet down because I don't want to do anything that would be offensive to you. And I said, CJ, you're my honored guest. You lift your hands all you want. You do what you want to do with your feet. You, you're not, it's not going to be a problem. And it wasn't. My point is, there's the right spirit. There's the right attitude in dealing with an issue like this. Uh, very serious question here. How do you feel about the current season of 24? Uh, so far, so good. Um, <laughs> my, my son Nathan saw the real terrorist guy coming. I mean, I didn't see it. I thought the, the sweet guy that loves the, the, uh, the girl was a, a good guy. He said, no, he's going to be the bad guy. Well, he's the bad guy. And so, so far, so good. I, my wife and I watched uh, uh, it uh, uh, two days ago. Fortunately, you called at 9 o'clock because I would not have returned your call. And so, uh, it's, it's so far, so good. What should a student do if a professor teaches a doctrine that contradicts the school's articles of faith? Well, you should follow Matthew 18. And that means that you would go directly to that professor to make sure that you have rightly and correctly heard him. Uh, if indeed that you find out that what he teaches is contrary to our articles of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the Abstract of Principles, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, then you should hopefully um, win your brother, and, and even though you're the student and he's the professor, uh, be used by God to, uh, to assist him. If it is not uh, received well, then the next step would be to go to the dean uh, of the school. So that would be Dr. Ashford in the college or Dr. Keithley in the seminary. And if for whatever reason you still do not believe that you have received a satisfactory response, then the next step is to come to me and uh, I would investigate it because I take very, very, very seriously uh, our confessional stance. And uh, so our professors sign uh, a document when they come here whereby they affirm that they believe each of those four documents and that they will teach in accordance with and not contrary to those four documents. And so if that were to be the case, then you should go and see them in a respectful way, uh, but in a loving way uh, and in a, uh, a genuine way as well. I will say this. Sometimes my experience over the years has been that what you thought was a contradiction of the articles of faith actually wasn't. And rather, it was an issue of difference in interpretation. I'll just throw out a, a real live wire for a moment to give you an example. Uh, does our confession of faith require that you affirm young earth, six-day, 24-hour creationism? No, it doesn't. Now, that is basically my position. But our confession of faith does not require that. It's not in the abstract. It's not in the BFNM 2000. Now, I can tell you all of my professors uh, believe in the historicity of Adam and Eve. They believe in the historicity of the fall. Uh, basically, I think because one, Genesis 3 is best understood that way. And secondly, it's Christological as well as soteriological because Paul clearly believed in the historicity of Adam based upon Romans 5. 
And uh, Jesus clearly believed in the historicity of Adam and Eve based upon Matthew 19 and other texts as well. And so, again, uh, there is latitude in certain areas for difference in interpretation. But if you find that a teacher is indeed uh, instructing in a way that's contrary, then you should go see them. And then if that is not well received, you can follow it all the way up to, uh, to my office, and I'll be glad to engage it as best that, um, that I can. Question here is bottom line, Dr. Aiken, I'm many times disappointed with the way some of my classmates conduct themselves, i.e., they drag into class late regularly, they dress like a slob, and uh, they look like they don't know what a razor is. And how do you think they will do when they are interviewed by various churches for positions of leadership? Is there something you can do? Well, several things here. One, uh, yeah, I think some of you do dress like slobs, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself, and so you ought to clean yourself up, um, and you ought to dress more appropriately. Now, you know how we are around here. Do, do we demand that you are in coat and tie? Well, uh, I sure hope not. Uh, otherwise, uh, I am uh, violating the dress code today. So we don't expect you to wear a tux, a coat and tie, or be uh, in that particular apparel. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, you ought to do it to the glory of God. And so if you think you can dress like a slob to the glory of God, well, then go ahead. But I suspect that you probably are thinking wrongly there. And so we all should dress neatly, cleanly. Uh, in an appropriate fashion, especially for the particular context. Now, I will say this. This is just a word of counsel to you. I, I receive probably an email or a phone call mm, once a quarter, so four or five times a year, from uh, pastors who basically say to me, do you not instruct your students how to prepare for an interview for a staff position? And they will quickly move to the fact that when they show up in a T-shirt and torn blue jeans, as far as my committee is concerned, as far as I'm concerned, they are D-O-A. And in fact, a couple of them have said that they immediately said, sit down, I'm going to buy you lunch, and then you can be on your way because this interview is done. We're not having one. Now, you say, well, they shouldn't be like that. Well, no, you ought to have more sense. You ought to just be a little bit smarter than that. Well, I have a point to make. Yeah, you're an idiot. And you've done a really good job of it. You've made a great point that you are an idiot. I mean, you would not go into a secular place of business wanting a job dressed like that. But you probably would be in a coat and a tie. Now, I'm not saying when you go to candidate or interview, you have to be in a coat and tie. But, you know, you come dressed like a bozo, like a clown, like a slob, like you're fixing to head to the beach. Don't be surprised if you don't get a second call. And it wasn't their fault. I myself, if I had a prospective professor show up in flip-flops, dirty jeans, and a T-shirt, you know, I still might hire him. But, boy, it would be something in that interview that overcame a 99% negative factor that kicked in the moment he or she walked into my office. And so you just need to recognize that there's a way to conduct yourself. You know, again, I was listening to this the other day by uh, Jim Shaddix, who was in our, uh, in our preaching class, and he talked about how we now try to make the big argument that we ought to dress down so that we're relating. You know, we can relate better when we're in a sweater and our blue jeans or T-shirts. And then he simply pointed out that, you know, turn on the TV and uh, what do you see? And you see just about everybody in what? A coat and a tie. You see athletes that are getting off the bus before a big game and they are dressed most of the time in what? A coat and a tie. 
So that's just a malarkey. That, that's just a joke. Now, I don't like coats and ties. I think the guy, again, that created the tie should be hung by it. But I, I'm not into that. I don't like it. But the fact of the matter is there's certain contexts where it is the appropriate thing to do. And as um, Bert Decker says in his book on communication, you can always, when you show up, dress down. But it's seldom that you come in with the ability to, to dress up. In other words, I go to a church today, I actually now have to call in advance most of the time and say, what's the dress code? What's the dress code? Because it's just so diverse, and I speak in 40 different churches a year, so it's just so diverse. But here's the deal, if I show up in a church with a coat and a tie on, and I discover that their pastor never wears a coat and a tie, you know what I do? What did I do? I take off my tie. What a novel idea. A tie comes off, collar comes open, may even take off my coat. And so there I am. I'm just dressed, you know, like kind of everybody else is. However, if I show up in blue jeans and a T-shirt and everybody on the stage is in a coat and a tie, I'm going to look kind of stupid. And I may lose a hearing from the beginning because not of what I'm going to say, but because of what they perceive me to be from their first impression. And by the way, we all know this. How many times do you get a chance to make a first impression? One time. Quick story. I'm invited one time to preach at a church in Florida. It's in the summertime. They call in advance say, look, in the summertime we dress down, so just come in a golf shirt, wear khakis, and you're good to go. So I said, great, sounds good to me. Put all that in the suitcase. And for some reason on this occasion, I said, you know, I don't know why, but I'm going to stick in my coat uh, or in my suitcase uh, a dress shirt, a tie, and a sports coat just in case, J- just in case. So it's in there, no big deal. Get down there like they do, pick me up, take me out to dinner. We're having dinner, and in the midst of the dinner, the minister of music says, Oh, by the way, I don't know if they told you or not, but in the morning, uh, we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper. And uh, when we do the Lord's Supper, even in the summer, uh, just so that you know, all the deacons will be down front, and they'll all have on a coat and a tie. I'm sure you brought a coat and a tie with you, didn't you? And I was able to say, uh, Yeah. I brought a coat and a tie. You say, what would have happened had you not? I would have said, well, you know, I was told that you guys dressed down in the summer. And so all I have in my suitcase is a uh, golf shirt, a pullover shirt. So as soon as we get through eating, you know, I need to be taken to a, uh, a men's store. And I need to buy it. And I wouldn't have made them pay for it. I, I need to buy a new shirt. I can always use a new shirt. I need to buy a new tie. And I'll buy a sports coat. You say, why? Because I was not going to be up there in a golf shirt with all those other men in a coat and a tie. It would have not have looked, it would not have looked well, and it would have been out of character with what was taking place that morning. And so that's, again, just a, some issues of common sense that I'm amazed sometimes that, that some of us don't have. All right. How are we to know what spiritual gifts are for the present-day church? Is there a distinction in that way, or are all the spiritual gifts Paul mentioned in Corinthians, and of course he mentions them in Romans and in First uh, Peter uh, as well. Uh, are all the gifts mentioned in First Corinthians present uh, and Ephesians are present gifts today, and are they needed and used as they were back then in the year 2010? Well, there's great diversity here. In fact, my faculty, I have no idea where where they are on this. Uh, I may have some faculty that are what are called uh, cessationist, and they believe that the more miraculous gifts ceased. Uh, at the end of the first century. Therefore, they would argue, and I've got some good friends that are pastors that hold this view, no tongues today, no interpretation of tongues today, uh, no miracles today, uh, no healings today. That, that was for the first century, not for today. 
I'm not a cessationist. I am best described as a cautious continualist. A cautious continualist. In other words, do I believe that all the gifts can be exercised today through human instrumentality? I do. So you believe, uh, uh, Danny, that like Peter and like Paul and like Jesus, uh, someone could actually raise the dead today? I do. I do. I believe that God could heal a blind person. God could heal a quadriplegic. God could heal a deaf person. I believe God, through human instrumentality, can do anything today that was done uh, in, the, uh, in the early church. I believe that. But I'm cautious. In other words, do I need significant evidence that it indeed took place? Yes, I do. Just like I think you have that provided for us in the biblical record. Furthermore, miracles by their very definition are exceptional, not the rule, not the norm. And therefore, we should not be looking for things like that all the time because it didn't take place all the time uh, in biblical history. In fact, if you read the, the totality of the canon, uh, you'll note that there are particular times where the miraculous kind of uh, manifests itself and then it wanes out. You say, that's because they weren't very spiritual. I, I would beg to differ there. In fact, uh, Bible trivia time. According to Jesus, who is the greatest man who ever lived? John the Baptist. And John's gospel has a very interesting statement that says, and I quote, and John did no miracles. That's a very important theological and biblical insight that we should not lose sight of. And so I don't think that, again, we can make a good argument that these things have ceased. At the same time, I think one needs to be biblically responsible in terms of their accepting of alleged uh, miraculous occurrences. Furthermore, because of my theological convictions, I do believe that we're going, and because of the biblical revelation, I do think as we move toward the end of the age, whenever that will be, that we will see an increase in the manifestations of the miraculous. And if I read Revelation correctly, that also indicates that some of it will be demonically inspired. Well, that means I think that today there are things that have the appearance of the miraculous that may have their source in the demonic, not in the divine. And therefore, one should always be careful and discerning as to what is the source of what we see happening that appears to be miraculous and extraordinary. I'm going to deal with this. I, I thought about not doing it first, but I'm going to because it can give me a chance to teach you all or bring to all of us, myself included, a valuable lesson. Uh, there has been a lot of questioning around uh, Dr. Nelson's resignation. I have overheard statements that Dr. Nelson has some issues with the SBC and inerrancy. Can you speak to that? Can you also speak to the particular stance that Southeastern has on inerrancy and what that entails for its faculty from year to year? Does a faculty member have to affirm every article of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, or can they simply affirm a majority of the articles? Well, let me move backwards. Do they have to affirm every article of the Chicago Statement? Yes. Absolutely. They don't get to pick and choose. There are no codicils. There's no, well, I can, on my contract, write off an area that I don't know. You do. You're not going to teach here. Uh, what is our stance with respect to inerrancy? And is it something that uh, is required for faculty from year to year? Yes. Now, they don't sign it every year. There are some schools that require their faculty to ante up again year after year after year. This is Danny Aiken. 
I, I, I trust that my faculty are men and women of integrity. And I trust that if they were to change their mind on something, they would come to me as a matter of integrity, and then we would work through it from that particular point. So we don't require it every year. Uh, it is understood that unless they uh, change their mind, uh, and if they do change their mind, they'll come see me. That's their view. And that they have not moved from that at all, plus the abstract and plus the BFNM 2000. Did Dr. Nelson resign over issues with inerrancy? No. Absolutely not. Dr. Nelson is still firmly committed to inerrancy. Uh, his resignation uh, from being the dean was for some personal health reasons. Uh, I think he has shared sufficiently enough out in public that he does have some concerns with the SBC uh, that, to put it in his exact words, and I don't think he would mind me saying this, there's some things happening in SBC life right now that frustrate me to the point that I don't feel like I can be the advocate for you as your dean and vice president that I need to be. Now, let me quickly add, I actually share all of his concerns. Uh, the difference is, for him right now, he feels like he needs to step aside because of some of those, at least in terms of this particular position. For me, it means I get up every morning, uh, I take a deep breath, I drink a big glass of iced tea with lots of caffeine in it, and then I jump out there again and plunge ahead because I want to leave something for you guys that's better than what I have today. I still think the uh, SBC is the best thing going with all of its shortcomings and all of its faults and all of its phobials, and so I'm going to keep plunging, uh, plugging away at it. But let me say this. Here's the lesson. Rumor-mongering is sinful. And spreading things that you think may be true is sinful. There's always an easy way to deal with an issue like this, and that is to simply go to the source and ask. And I know David well enough, uh, who, by the way, continues to be one of my closest friends, and I see nothing that will change that uh, now and forever. Uh, He'd be happy to tell you uh, what his uh, thinking is right now that led him to make that particular decision. But the things I just said to you are almost verbatim quotes. So you need to understand that he is in no way moved away from uh, the position of inerrancy. Uh, it is simply for some, he does have, I think those of you that know him well, know he does have some health issues and that uh, one of the things that would help those health issues is to relieve uh, some stress. Well, the fact of the matter is, anytime you're in an administrative position, I don't care on what size church or entity or institution it is, uh, it brings stress. And uh, for him, the heart condition in particular that he has is significantly acerbated by uh, stress. And so relieving some of that uh, is helpful. And indeed, just this Monday night, the, the cabinet, the, the deans and vice presidents of this school had dinner with David and Kathleen asked him how he was doing, and he said, actually, I'm doing better the last couple of months physically than I've done in a long time. And so I rejoice in that. Is the seminary stance on the consumption of alcohol purely a result of the SBC stance in general? Do you see the convention moving away from the 19, uh, 1896 abstinence position in the future? Working backwards? No, I don't. Uh, is our stance merely a reflection of it in general? No. 
It is a reflection of it in general, but I have deep convictions in this area about the wisdom. Again, you know my position if you've listened to me. I don't think that moderate use of alcohol can be said to be sinful. I would still argue with any of you that it's not wise, it's not best, especially in a 21st century Western context where you have an alcohol industry that so manipulates and seeks genuinely and truly to bring people into addiction to their product. And so, in my judgment, uh, a wiser stance is abstinence. And so, the position of this school will not change. Uh, Let me say this, though, while I'm here. I've heard by way of conversation with some that some of you, probably you're not here, but some of you have said that, well, when I signed the covenant of conduct that one has to sign when I first came to Southeastern, I marked off on mine that I would not agree nor abide by the issue related to alcohol. That's a lie. That's a lie. You say, how do you know it's a lie? Because that person would not have been allowed to matriculate and come to this school. Because right or wrong, I'm not backing off on any of those aspects of that covenant one whit. And if you don't like it, that's your prerogative. There are other schools you can go and attend. So that is a lie. That's not true. Secondly, if you sign it and then commence to engage the use of alcohol other than medicinally, that is, you take Tylenol because you got a bad cold and you need something to knock you out and get rid of your cold, so you take Tylenol, which I don't take because it makes me hallucinate and has nothing to do with the alcohol. In fact, I probably would enjoy the alcohol, but can't tell anybody that. But anyway... Um, Other than medicinally, my issue with you is not one of your view on alcohol. My issue with you is one of your integrity. And that's far more serious. Even my good friend Mark Driscoll, with whom I disagree on this issue, says, you sign a covenant that says you're not going to drink, then you don't need to drink. And if you do drink, you sin. You sin against Christ and you compromise your integrity. And is it really worth that? Once you leave here... Wherever you go, whatever you do, that'll be a matter of you and and with whomever you choose to serve. But while you're here, it is our expectation. You sign the covenant. You ought to be a man or a woman of your word. And if you're not, then shame on you. You're in the flesh. You're carnal. You're not walking as Christ would have you walk. And you've got some other issues that are far, far, far more serious. Tell you something. If you'll lie in a small area like that, you'll lie in other areas in your life, too. And you're forming your character right now. And what you form today will be what you build upon tomorrow and what you build upon tomorrow and what you build upon tomorrow. And here's the deal, guys. You're coming down a path, and if you begin to move in a direction that bespeaks a lack of integrity, you'll keep moving down that road that bespeaks a lack of integrity. On the other hand, if you walk down the road of integrity and you stay on that road, 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 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, when you have issues that will confront you that are far more serious than this one, the issue of compromising your integrity won't even be on the radar screen. It won't even be a consideration because you've committed early in life, I will be a man or a woman of integrity. So that's my thinking there. Very quickly, I just have a few more questions that I'll be able to take. Maybe I can save the others for some other time. What are your views about Christianity and patriotism? And what, if any, should have should it have in our church? I.e., can, should we pledge allegiance to a country in Christ at the same time? Wow. What a loaded question. 
Well, I will offend some of my friends here, and that's okay. Uh, we love each other, and I hope that they will not uh, write me off because of this. Uh, I'll give you an example. If I were a pastor, would I have a 4th of July celebration service? No. I would not. You say, why not? Because church is for celebrating the Lordship of Christ, not the United States of America. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love this country. I have no doubt it is the greatest country in the world. I'd rather live here than anywhere else. Yes, we have a lot of things we do poorly, but we do a lot of things that are great, good, wonderful. And I thank God for all the good that the United States of America does. I thank God for all the men and women that have served in our armed forces and that serve today. I, I, I rejoice in all of that. But I am not going to... One of the, one of the great... Um, uh, what I'm going to use here? Temptations. One of the great dangers of conservative evangelical Christianity, especially in the South, is that we get these things confused. And I've ticked some people off in recent days when I've spoken. I, you know, I get on my little runs every now and then and things have become kind of a burr under my saddle for a while. And one of them right now is, and I'll say to folks, let me make something clear to you. You can be a conservative right-wing Republican who is uh, pro-life, pro-marriage, pro-military, and you can bust hell wide open. Being a conservative Republican does not make you a Christian. They have nothing in common. Now, you say, but I bet you vote Republican just about every time. And you're pro-life. Oh, you have no idea. And you're pro-marriage and pro-kids. Yeah, pro-grandkids now. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm for all of that. I'm, I'm for all of that. But those are political convictions that I hold that in some sense are a reflection and an outgrowth in part, in part of my theological convictions. But I do not want to run the risk of confusing the gospel. And I fear that many times this is exactly what happens. Now, am I going to go to a church and if they are like having vacation Bible school and they're pledging allegiance to the flag, uh, the Christian flag and the Bible, am I going to sit there with my arms folded and not participate? No, I'll do it. It's not going to bother me. It's not going to compromise my conscience. Now, if it bothers you and compromises your uh, conscience, then don't do it. This is an area where we can extend grace and Christian liberty to each other. And uh, so, though I wouldn't do it if, if I were at a church on a... For, and I have been. Oh, my goodness. I've been to church on um, Memorial Day. I've spoken in churches on the 4th of July weekend where they do these big patriotic kind of services and things. Do I sit over there with my arms folded or do I get up afterwards as their guest and say, well, let me just tell you what I think about what you just did? No. That would be out of line. It would be inappropriate. Furthermore, this is not an area where I can say uh, it's a black or white biblical issue. I, I, I can't say that. But for me... It is something that I'm not all that comfortable with. And therefore, uh, I would tend to push it away and I would tend not to be a part of that. All right. Let me see if I can take one more. And uh, this is a good one. I got to ask twice. Um, is your school, is our school going to work more intentionally to attract those with different uh, ethnic, socioeconomic, cultural, uh, racial and national backgrounds to our school? Well, I've been working on it since I got here. 
Uh, am I happy with where we are? No. There are too many white people in here this morning. And so, no. I'm, I'm not even close to being where I want to be. Uh, we're working very hard through our um, uh, admissions office. Uh, in fact, my son Nathan, uh, one of his projects right now is to try to build some relationships and inroads with ethnic groups uh, in North Carolina that we might begin to, to become a feeder school for them to come here. I'm also a big fan of internationals coming here, although I was asked this question, and I don't mind saying it publicly because I want my, my position to be clear here, even with my international brothers and sisters. Um, the question was raised, uh, you guys require a huge deposit for internationals when they come here that they don't get until they go back home. That's right. Well, do you think that discourages them from coming here? I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. You say, why do y'all do that? Because I want them to go home. I don't want them to stay here. Uh, the fact of the matter is, too often, uh, internationals who come here fall into the same trap that you and I are already in. And they get seduced by the American dream and the American context. And so, though they came here to be educated, to go back to their country, to help grow the God, to extend the gospel, to help strengthen the church, to help integrate theological education into their particular context, you would be absolutely blown away and grieved at how many times they don't go home. So one of the ways we can encourage them is by holding that deposit and saying, when you go home, you get that $6,000 back. If you don't go home, you're not getting it back. And I have, and you understand, most of the folks that come here from other countries are on scholarship, which I'm happy to do. But I will say this, and I'll close with this. I've become more and more convinced. Uh, first of all, two ways. One, do I want more folks of ethnic diversity? And Although we have a pretty good socioeconomic diversity among this student body. But do I want more people of, a, of an ethnic diversity on this campus? Absolutely. And I am open to all of your suggestions. And I will continue to beat that drum until I'm no longer the president of this school. Do I want internationals to come here? Yes, but I'm convinced that probably the better way of providing theological education for those in the, uh, around the world is to go to them. Provide theological education in their context so that they can continue to minister where they are, be trained where they are, and not run the risk of being seduced by the American dream. I've seen it happen too many times. I know it makes me then come across as being harsh to internationals. That is not my heart at all. Uh, my heart is that the gospel be extended across the nations and that we have well-trained men and women to do that. And it grieves me when they come here to be trained to do that and then 10, 20, 30 years down the road, they're here and their nation still languishes in theological ignorance that they came here with the express purpose of going back and correcting. That bothers me. Well, guys, we're at 11 o'clock. Thank you so much for your time. Love and appreciate you. And uh, you are dismissed. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe 
working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.